0: Welcome to the Rock Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins, and I'm in a Zoom meeting with Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper mirison Bowie. Hello, Barney. Today, we'll be hearing clips from a 1973 audio with Rick, or Ricky Nelson, depending on your musical affinities. And we'll also be discussing pieces by Lisa Verico of Vox and The Times. But first, we turn our attention to the very sad news that Florian Schneider, the co-founder of Kraftwerk, has died at the age of 73 and joining us to talk about the almost unparalleled influence of that german group is rbp contributor and craft expert simon witter welcome
1: hi welcome barney and, and all <laughs> lovely to be here <laughs> great <laughs> thanks who for you Zoom. calling who are you calling an all, <laughs> an all. The, 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 the people in the vip roped off section at the back <laughs>
0: Well, it's great to see you, Simon. Can you sum up in one short, neat and pithy paragraph exactly why craftwork were so important and are so
1: important? That's incredibly difficult to do in one pithy paragraph. Good, I'm but, glad uh, I put you on the spot. Yeah, well, basically they started with a blank canvas after the Second World War when German culture had not existed for 20 years out of shame and sort of reinvented music. They thought we don't have to take cues from anywhere else. We're going to start singing in German, which no one, no young people did. And they what they imagined sounds that didn't exist yet in terms of musical instruments and went to a lot of the computer companies in the Rhineland area where they were and asked people who worked there, who were working on very dry mathematical things, to come up with instruments. So they effectively created an entire sound that no one else could do because those instruments didn't exist. Yeah. They then also... Discovered a, an idea of a sort of German folk music that was based on environmental sounds of Germany, of the motorways, of the factories. They were always, they had all sorts of earlier influences from the Ramones to God knows what, but they liked very much to get inspired just by listening to things around them that weren't records. And their influence is basically that by the time they would perfected what they were doing in, in the late 70s, I would say the perfect album is, is The Man Machine in 78 which is almost perfect in every way, and sounded like a window to the future. Yeah, yeah. And it had an amazing cover, which Emil Schultz had done based on Russian constructivism, and everything they did was informed by a huge network of ideas. But if you understood none of that, it didn't matter, because it just looked and sounded extraordinary. So one of the the three pieces we're going to feature on the homepage, Simon, this week is
0: your epic... 2005 retrospective ah, yes. for Mojo, which, <laughs> I mean, I have to say, I, I reread it and it, it's just absolutely superb. I think if anyone's listening and they really want to understand why Kraftwerk was so great and so important, read this piece. And it is the director's cut version. Yes, it, it's, it, it, it's mainly, or essentially, it's based on an interview with Ralph Hutter, who co-founded craft with Florian, didn't he? Yeah. Tell us about those two men and the difference between them and you know what made Florian so special.
1: Well I, I should say first of all that I met Ralph Hutter many times but Florian never because he'd already decided 10 years before I talked to them that he'd had enough of interviews and if you've seen there's an epic terrible Brazilian TV interview from 1998 on YouTube where a sort of asinine woman tries to get something out of him with no joy backstage at a festival. And you can see, like Robert De Niro, some of the people who didn't want to do interviews, you can see why when you see them being interviewed. But he was he was the funny one. Actually, like a lot of bands where people don't see humour, like Pink Floyd, they always thought a lot of their stuff was funny and no one was getting it. And Kraftwerk also, both of them sort of love humour, but Florian was the one who sort of larked about he was, as, as Hutter said in that piece you mentioned, he described Florian as a sound fetishist. Yeah. I mean, when the first Vokoda was built for craftwork, he complained to the man who did it that it sounded too human and could he make it a bit more robotic? Yes. And he, had, he was always tinkering with sound and had finally, I gather in recent years, been given a post at as, as a German university in sort of sound that he never practically took up. Is that right? Yeah. At Karlsruhe University, they'd appointed him some sort of professorship and he never showed up. But uh, <laughs> he was basically interested in in the sort of the sound of the future. And of course, personally, they were very interested in in cycling and they did that endlessly, enormous loops of Europe on their bikes. And one of the things that inspires all of their stuff is, is the idea of motion, forward motion, travel, you know, internationalism, all that sort of stuff. That's why they have all those... Records like Trans Europe Express, which talk about traversing the continent. And all the rhythms they come up with came from breathing and heartbeats and cycling and things like that.
0: Intellectually, they were very brilliant, weren't they?
1: Yeah. I mean, their
0: interviews, the other two pieces do feature Florian speaking. So one from 75, Carl Dallas on the Autobahn, except it's a Scottish Autobahn yeah. when they <laughs> maybe their first UK tour. And Florian is interviewed. And then Glenn O'Brien interviewing Ralph and Florian for interview in nineteen seventy seven. And I mean he's he's very articulate. Yeah. Ralph may have been more of the sort of spokesman, I suppose.
1: Yeah. Well I think he was just happier talking. It's not necessarily you have more to say. Florian just wasn't interested in that. Right. I mean, I always thought, talking about Florian, his father was a famous architect who had built Cologne Airport and various pieces. Mm. And I always thought of craftwork as a bit like architecture, that they resembled the Pompidou Centre. Yeah, (laughs) You know, that their sound is a sort of gleaming turbine of modernism, uncluttered with any sort of sentimental flourishes, with all its tech on the outside, you know, proudly there. I mean, in the 70s, we're all, apart from Jasper, old enough to remember when people had hi-fis in wooden cabinets, <laughs> like they were, and televisions and hi fi's were often wooden. How do you know wooden... he
0: hasn't got one in a wooden
1: cabinet? We actually do have a hi fi
2: in a wooden cabinet do you? downstairs. So well, there that's, you go. that's You're terribly downstairs. retro.
1: But my point would be that they didn't have any of those metaphorical no. wooden panels. It was all no. gleaming yeah. and on the outside, no. mm. and that's very. It was very architectural, very sort of precise and beautiful. Jasper being half
0: German, I mean, what does <laughs> do Kraftwerk mean to you? I mean, I, I, I know that you're a fan, but I'm just interested to know how you hear Kraftwerk at the age of 23. I think they're very interesting. And I've always been into electronic music,
2: also because it was one of the first kinds of music that I was able to make for myself beyond playing the piano. But for me, It cannot have the newness that it would have done at the time. So for me, it's very interesting as the germ of so many ideas that you can trace afterwards. It's not necessarily exciting in a sort of, wow, this is so different to anything I've heard before, but it is exciting in the sense of, wow, these guys were visionaries and they could really see what was possible with the technology. But the other thing that I like is that I'm not only half German, actually the German part of my family is from the Rhineland, is from near Cologne, Dusseldorf, So that is the Germany that I know as well, that industrial landscape, very flat. And I really like the point you make about the humour of Kaffee, because actually this is something we talked about when Dorian Linsky came on the pod. It's like people often assume they're these kind of robotic and people laugh at them when in fact people should be laughing with them because there's so much humor in what they do and yeah. it's something that I really really appreciate because it's a kind of humor that I know well there's well a lot of from.
1: a lot of humor in there that sort that of visual thing. aesthetic all that what's the word The retro futurism all the old yeah. black yeah. you know the black and yeah. white stuff and the neon signs the lights of old kölschwasser 4, seven eleven flying by in the background <laughs> also in their lyrics in German I mean one of the things I found frustrating a lot of the, the I mean there's so much a reaction to German culture at the time they're Neatness, the politics, the surveillance state, the sort of hippie going back to the country. They're rebelling against all of that and celebrating technology yeah. and stuff. But there's also a lot of humour in the songs, and it's when they translate them, so much of that goes wrong. I mean, like the yeah. model... Which is a very dry and funny song in German. In English, sounds like an idiot's written it. I mean, a seven-year-old or something. I mean, it's a oh, I love it. It's just so sort of bizarre that thing. Which I, but they they didn't seem to mind about that. Although interestingly, I think many groups have a song they they kind of hate but have to play. And <laughs> for Craftwork, it would have been the model. I mean, they dropped that for years in their live set. Because, of course, it had come as a hit in in the early 80s when it was a B-side of a new single from a previous album. (laughs) So it was completely wrong to them. And suddenly the English had put it as their only number one hit and they they weren't that keen on it. It was like Warren Zevon and Werewolves of London. Yeah, exactly. (laughs)
0: Mark, what's your what's your well, take
3: on Crawford? I had the misfortune of Autobahn being the first song of theirs I heard, and I hated it because it sounded kind of rinky dink and sort of gimmicky. And if I hadn't heard it, if I'd come straight in, let's say three or four years later, I thought you know, or even just two years later, I think I'd have really, really liked them. But that stopped me in my tracks for a long time. In the same way as, let's say, Wuthering Heights prevented me from listening to Kate right. Bush until years okay. after the fact. It's just one of those things. you know. I'm one of those people, I'll respond...
2: Who jump to conclusions. I'll jump to a huge... Yeah.
3: Well, uh, in some extent, a justifiable conclusion, mm-hmm. you know, but then it just poisons me for kind of quite a while afterwards. What I'm really intrigued about is how they had such a massive impact on African-American dance music.
1: Well, I think that's, that's fairly simple to say, because if you look at the early hip-hop act, who are using all sort of what we might call white pop music for their beats a lot of it yeah they were obsessed with sounds i mean people like you know craftworks trans europe express was the record that did that yeah in the mid 70s right across america when no one knew who they were but heard that record and uh, djs all over the place played it and especially in new york but also in washington where they were definitely not listening to new york hip-hop trouble funk made a re-recording of it as trouble funk express Really? that, Yeah, which Kraftwerk knew about at the time and were amused about. <laughs> and they all, because it has that beat that they want, and when they're only listening to the sounds and the beat, the pristine brilliance of Kraftwerk transcends all these things. And it did seem very ironic at the time that this mega stiff looking white band would end up being the most influential act and white act in the history of dance music. But they, it's the it's the sounds, the textures, the rhythms.
3: And then on to Detroit. I mean, yeah. the, 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 the huge influence. On, and, and Chicago House, but Detroit in particular, More, techno. Yeah. I find that absolutely fascinating. I really like that. That, yeah. that it's very stiff-looking, very as white as you can get in some respects. Yeah, Spanish has have such a huge impact. on I mean, that, it was you know?
1: interesting also because, like, when certain white acts became big in Black America, like George Michael, that some people were quite annoyed about that. Yeah, but Kraftwerk were in somehow was so otherworldly that people didn't bother about their race. <laughs>
0: you know,
1: they had other. <laughs> they had other fish to fry. Yes,
0: in the, with the, the Glenn O'Brien interview and Glenn. The late, great Glenn Abrams, one of my very favourite interviewers from Andy Warhol's interview magazine. And so this is 77, and Ralph and Florian have come to New York. I mean, this is way before Africa, Bamba or anything like that. And they've come to New York to pick up an award at the Disco Awards. And Glenn says that you know they've already made an enormous impact on the world of disco in the last year by combining perfect dance beats with graceful, intelligent melodies and fully conceptualised themes. And he, he says that showroom dummies... Was a tremendous popular disco hit, you know.
3: One thing there also is they'll be listening, people will be listening to it on these fantastic systems that were built in places yeah. like the Paradise Garage and David Mancuso's Loft. And what those records must have sounded like on those systems, it's yeah. just, you know, would have been unbelievable.
0: Talking of their sound, I mean, I, I, last night when we learned that, I mean, obviously, Florian has been, he's, it turns out he's been dead for a week. He died over a week ago, didn't he? But I started playing Craft Rock on Spotify, and do you know what? It sounded absolutely brilliant on my little MacBook Pro. <laughs> I mean, <the> <laughs> sounds... <laughs> No, but it, I, of course, to you, who's the who's the ultimate hi-fi expert, I have. I mean, not many records sort of yeah. sounds like they just literally jump out of a tiny laptop speakers, and it just reminded me how how extraordinary, and pristine, yeah. and, and immaculate their sonics. Is were. that to
3: some extent? the nature of electronic music and electronics in the same way as early computer games that sort of eight bit sound actually sounds good on anything you put it through because it's designed Maybe. you know whether it's actually a byproduct of its electronicness
1: well it should be said also that they most of the stuff from their classic era which i would say ends with computer world in 81 that they didn't have a computer i mean it's analog yeah. you know they then re Recorded and re-sequenced and programmed everything on computers when they went on two or ten years later, but it had all been done when they had a computer. World album, they didn't have a computer. I mean, it was it was a uh, people had sort of very bizarre personal computers, but it wasn't part of the music making process.
3: Didn't they have sort of basic sequences, very yeah. simple sequences, and things like that?
1: I must say, I'm, I'm actually. Not the right person to give you the exact lowdown of what their equipment was, but this um, isn't
3: good enough, Simon. I mean, we invite you on the. <laughs> I've, been, I've been introduced <laughs> as an expert quite wrongly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, you are absolutely an expert. One of the things you write about in the nine thousand word yeah. director's cut is. I mean, you talk about the emotion, and of course. You know, they were saddled with this idea that they very sort of cold and, and robotic and soulless. Of course, it's absolute yeah. nonsense. There's, there's so much melancholia, isn't there? In I mean, think of neon yeah. lights. And I, I would say, even the model, I find yeah. there's a tremendous sadness in But
1: that. this all goes back to that long standing sort of rockist ideas that, that music has to be played on bits of wood with strings, uh, and that if it's electronic, it's somehow artificial. Whereas, of course, you know, electronic waves and sound, however you produce them, can create incredible emotion. Precisely. And they're all, I mean, I, I think I used as an example probably that Finger's Ink track, Can You Feel It?, which has no words, yeah. but is like a religious gospel thing in electronics. I mean, it's uh, there's the, the idea that emotion or electronics are cold or artificial is, is just plain wrong. I mean, it's a weird one. It is, it's, it's not. I should say that I'm yeah. very pleased that you're running my director's cut of that article because I wrote 4,000 words more than Mojo asked for. And they the four thousand they were so obsessed with the sort of personality of Ralph Hutter that they basically cut all my ideas out of it to make way for just the interview, which I was quite annoyed with at the time. So I, I love the fact that this now lives in the <laughs> world in its proper version.
0: <laughs> Splendid. Talking of Florian just a little bit, he essentially you know he left the group. was there and is your take on it that there was some kind of falling out or estrangement? They didn't I don't think Ralph and Florian communicated very often after 2008.
1: I I did actually ask Ralph about this after he left and his version of it was simply that there was, um, I mean, I did, I just heard yesterday that they had barely spoken since then, which is a bit depressing really Mm. because they were so seminal for so many years. But Ralph's take on it was simply that he'd really started enjoying going out and playing live every year and Florian just didn't. He didn't see the point of playing live all the time. And they did go, after coming back into the live arena, they did actually put on you know, dozens of shows each year. They weren't rare in that sense. And he just got bored of it. And after 2008, he thought, well, you carry on without me. But as Florian was, you know, a conceptualist with Ralph, he also believed absolutely from the beginning that they weren't craftwork, that craftwork was an idea. They were both utterly mystified by the sort of celebrity interest in them, which, of course, only heightened a 100 times by the fact that they were, you know, hermits. And like like Prince, if you don't talk to people, people become much more interested. Yeah. But they just didn't understand why people wanted to know what they got up to. They thought it's not about us, you know. And that again was slightly ahead of its time in the sense that when they came out, the cult of personality was enormous, and they rather foreshadowed that late eighties dance thing that happened. You know, twelve years later, when when really you did, barely knew who the artists were and didn't care.
0: I mean, the great thing is that they are now. Revered on the same level, you might almost say, as Miles Davis, Jimi Hendrix, the Beatles, Bob Dylan, David Bowie. I mean, they are in their field, and in terms of what they did and how they changed music, in the way you described so well, Simon, they are now, and it's not just a kind of electronica fanatics who would say that. I think most of us appreciate that these guys, you know, culturally and musically were giants.
1: Absolutely. Well, I, and the, Last craftwork thing I did was a, an hour long documentary for the European Arts Channel Arte, which ran on BBC4 called Craftwork Pop Art. And I had a very long and amusing fanboy conversation with Paul Morley for that, which ended up Cut down to about half an hour in the program, which a lot of people complained about the length of. It was a, actually you could see day turning to night in the background. <laughs> but
4: uh,
1: uh, Paul's, Paul's I think, point I think was: people who've read lots of Paul Morley yeah. articles have
0: probably. Well, under- Paul, <laughs> Paul was always <laughs> very pleased
1: to talk to me, which I was. I, I was. He said I made him look good, which was very kind. But he's brilliant in it, and his point, which he made, which a lot of people got quite annoyed about, was that as far as he was concerned, they were as influential as the Beatles. Yeah, and he yeah. argued that very convincingly. That of course, a lot of people got iry about it. Yeah, and Bowie said he was
0: there, that the Kraftwerk were his favourite group. Obviously, huge influence on. I mean, V2 Schneider on yeah. Heroes is is. A yeah. and, and, and
3: going to, back to my point about African American music is that yeah. they changed the sound of dance music. You know, yeah. in a sense, right across the board. Yeah. If you listen to any house music, any techno. Craft yeah. work at the heart of that stuff. And, yeah. and that is club music. Wherever you go in in the world,
1: you go into a club, yeah.
3: you're hearing something which actually derives very directly
1: from yeah. it. Yeah. Well, I'd like to come back to Barney's point about Bowie because he was central to craft breaking because craft actually a lot of the early critics who saw them were very, did, just didn't understand them at all and were in some points, frankly, xenophobic. No but he, he took them to his breast really and they, when they met him when he was touring in the early... 70s in Germany, he was driving around in a Mercedes playing Autobahn all day and all night and wanted to meet them. He then stole their neon lighting thing for his stage tour and they had this great thing. But most importantly to them, he, you know how Bowie has a, he always has a phase, like he'll be talking about the Pixies or Goldie or whoever's new at the time. In the mid 70s, he was talking about craft work all the time when the press hung on every word like tablets of stone from Moses. So they... Benefited enormously from him banging on about them. Yes, and so the Bowie Crawford connection is is very significant. And I, I mean, I always
0: just loved the first time I ever heard Trans Europe Express. One of my absolute yeah. favourite Crawford tracks is when when they talk about meet Iggy Pop and David Bowie. <laughs> it's brilliant. Yeah. It's just so I just thought that was so cool. Yeah. <laughs> meet Iggy Pop and David Bowie. Trans Europe Express. And the whole European thing. I mean, well, look, I think we probably don't have much more time to talk about them and Florian because we have to talk about everything else that's new on Rocksback Pages. But the news came in late last night. We would otherwise probably have been talking about Tony Allen, who we lost, and we were all ready to talk about Afrobeat, and then we had to just make this sort of last minute decision. But I I would like, I just want to acknowledge how important Tony Allen I, I, was I, I, giant, the story of Afro giant. Being,
3: I, I think it's absolutely astonishing. I mean, sadly,
0: the least interesting thing he ever did was that really
3: dreadful thing with Damon Albarn well, and Paul Simonon, the good, the bad, and the good, queen, the bad, and the where queen. he was entirely wasted playing average, plodding rock. You can and hardly he, hear I mean, no. yeah. But yeah. what an astonishing drummer. I actually, I love Phil though he's a, pretty repellent individual, the more you read about him, the yeah. less you want to know about him. Yeah, but but mm. I think Tony Allen's solo albums are absolutely astonishing. Yeah. You know, there's a, that, what's it now, Lagos. Um, Lagos speaking. Lagos speaking. And they're glorious. He's just such yeah. an interesting drummer. Yes. Yes. I'll also kind of briefly, while we're on the, the obituary end of the podcast, is talk about Millie Small, who again died yesterday, who... My body, well, and pop was one of, when I was eight years old, was just one of the huge records in my life. I even cut out her picture from Fabulous magazine and put it on my wall. And at night, her eyes followed me around the room. It was kind of a spooky sort of way. And it's just such a joyful record. And it's recorded in London. It's probably the first record to internationalize Scar. You know, it was a big hit all around the world and Europe.
0: Absolutely. And we have got this wonderful audio interview on Rock's Back Pages by Tom yeah. Graves, which it's free for today. And we've had it free since we learnt about Millie's passing. And it's delightful. It's a phone interview. Hmm.
3: Turns out she she was living at the time of the interview about 200 yards from our Rock's yeah. Back Pages office. Exactly.
2: exactly. <laughs> Just briefly to go back to Tony Allen, I think sort of in a similar way should not be understated how influential he was as a drummer, and the rhythms that he introduced across a whole really wide range of different genres. I just, so much of the, you know, because right now pop music uh, is a very Afrobeat sounding, has many Afrobeat rhythms. I think actually, interestingly as well, my generation of club goers do recognise Tony Allen as someone who is worth hearing because of, I think, the influence of people like Giles Peterson. Jeff Mills and that sort of DJ where world music quote unquote comes into play I think Tony Allen is just a giant on that front.
0: Yeah absolutely and whatever you think of Damon Albarn he certainly had a lot to do with the prominence that Tony Allen's enjoyed in, in the last 10-15 yeah. years here, He got a good few rounds on the festival circuit out of that <laughs> <laughs> Yeah yeah, exactly Oh, and is anyone going to say anything about Dave Greenfield? Oh god Whoa. Jesus Christ <laughs> Well, I would say... <laughs> well, shall we just note the passing of... Great well, great I, well
1: I would say that I am sad about it. Not that I have any intention of seeing The Stranglers this year, but I have seen them many times. And have you? The, yeah, have the first time... You surprised me. No, oh, I absolutely loved The Stranglers. Did I, you love The Stranglers? I thought there was... Well, it was... I was 14 in 1977, and although everyone talks about punk, the two records that dominated the radio, which at that time I was forced to hear because I was at school and everyone had it on, were Peaches by The Stranglers and Hotel California they were the two those two records That's all you needed those two records were 77 if you were listening to the radio Right. but i i no, I, I just he, what he'd gave the strangers because obviously they're a very odd punk yeah, because yeah. they're much older than the rest of the punks and they're they're less punky we look but like they were an mainly less mainly less extent, punky because he had a, a sort of Ray Manzarek-style yes, keyboards going on. Absolutely. And his his keyboards are fantastic, but no-one else in punk had no. keyboards. I mean, it was... A... Let alone Ray anyway, it's just, keyboards. It's quite hard to
2: pick up a keyboard and smash it as well. So <laughs> oh, no.
1: Exactly. <laughs> but Keith Emerson did yes. that all the
3: time. <laughs> I mean, the other thing is that, I mean, he wrote the music to Golden Brown, which was a sort of later yeah. Strangles hit. Yeah. And yeah. it's basically a sort of harpsichord piece, isn't it, to all intents yeah. and purposes?
1: you know, It's a hymn to heroin Oh uh, well. Yes, I
3: thought one of the weird no, things no, about
1: that is the BBC radio used to have some very hypersensitive drug sensors and they cut out a song once, a single by Cameo called Candy, which is clearly about love. They decided it was about drugs and banned it but they'd missed Golden Brown completely somehow. <laughs> Played which... the hell out of this Played heroine. Played the hell so. out of this heroine. I know, <laughs> it's brilliant, isn't it?
0: I mean, I saw the Strangers a couple of times. In, in I saw them supporting Patsy Smith, and I saw them at the Nashville. And even then, I sort of thought... There's something slightly malevolent about these guys. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know?
2: Well, I—I I them. they are called them... the Stranglers. It's not. Hey, there's a clue
0: in the They're name. They're
1: not the well, Huggers. They
0: were. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Huggers were terrible. Well, the funny <laughs> thing is, they were—they were, they were originally
1: called the Guildford Stranglers after yeah, the Boston right. Strangler, that's but of course, right. Guildford is the squarest town in Britain, so they lost that part of the name quite quickly. <laughs> But they no. Yeah. I thought I once interviewed them for the anime in the in the late eighties on the Cote d'Azur at a biker festival, and I did go in. <laughs> so, sorry, so I did good. back up. Back did up. go on. there. the headline. The headline was Faye Bikers on Azure. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, uh, on those... That may be the greatest enemy headline yes. ever. <laughs> anyway, they, but I I went in slightly scared because they'd been so bad to so many journalists. Yeah. And Q Cornwall simply refused to speak to me and the others were all delightful. <laughs> so it was, uh, it was... That sounds comparatively fine. <laughs>
3: well, I mean, they did have a fairly odious reputation for misogyny. Yeah women interviewers were consistently given a particularly hard time particularly by Georges Jacques Bernal
0: you're you know, not being so, sneeringly woke again are you Pizzle? I am being
3: sneeringly woke <laughs> it's
0: the sneeringly woke moment
3: <laughs> anyway so much yeah. for, for Dave yeah well yeah.
0: you know I mean an important punk yeah. figure really Indeed. very important so so I'm for just, all you
1: Stranglers fans out there yeah I was just going to say I really should go is it possible to record whatever the goodbye is, whatever the goodbye is at the end of the show and, uh... well I
3: mean I think mean, we can, we can, can leave, leave all this in. But Simon, you're, you're up to there and work and you've got to go. It's been brilliant having you on.
1: My pleasure. I've, it's been great fun.
0: Yeah. Simon, it's really just lovely having you here to talk about Crawford. It well, really it'd be great lot.
1: to see you all in real life when this is yeah. all blown over. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. That would yep. be a treat. We'll and, um, meet again, don't know where. Don't I've got news on Vera Lynn.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, well, we will meet again. And, I'm um, going to
1: leave now, but thanks. For right. we'll, Thank we'll, you we'll, so much.
0: Be care. well. Okay. That worked surprisingly well. It went very well, actually. Yeah. No, it's a real joy. He's so lovely. He's really great. Nice and he really song. knows his shit about... He tells about no his shit about the Virk. The work <laughs> It is
2: funny to me, this pronunciation, the English pronunciation, craft work. It has this sort of... Slightly parochial feel to like it. Like arts and Almost, crafts. like, yeah. like, like cotswold cots exactly world-ish.
0: Yes, <laughs> exactly.
2: <laughs> Rather than, you know, because Kraftwerk, of course, is Kraft. a power plant.
0: Yes. Yeah, absolutely.
2: I used to. This, this actually is a wonderful little sort of vignette of that part of Germany, is there is a theme park called Kernwasser Wunderland, which is in an abandoned nuclear power station has been turned into a theme park for children. I think that sort of sums up <laughs> the Rhineland quite, pretty- quite neatly.
0: So we've said goodbye to Mr. Witter. I'm very grateful to have him on talking about Kraftwerk. We're also now going to talk about the other three Elements on the home page this week, which are consist of three pieces by Lisa Verico, who I first read in Vox magazine, but she's been writing for the Times and Sunday Times for the last, you know, however many years. So pick two. Times and Sunday Times pieces, but we're starting with a Vox piece that just, it's basically a transcription, I think we may have talked about this in a previous podcast, but it's so funny, I thought I had to feed she just transcribes the rantings of Marquis e. Smith.
3: Yeah, <laughs> I love that and, one, and yeah. It is just very, very, very funny. funny.
0: It's just everybody's a hippie, you know, I mean, she's just so enraged, he's only 34 years old at this point, but he sounds about 78, <laughs> and, and, and everyone is accused of a hippie, everyone who works for any record company is a hippie. Every musician is a hippie. You know, grunge bands are rubbish. They're all hippie children. We just did a tour of America and we were supported by a whole crowd of them. Really sad. We were asked to do the Nirvana tour as well. We turned it down. It would have been a waste of time. <laughs> this is the biggest band in the world right at that moment. And they turned down a Nirvana support. I mean, he, he, he's just, he was his own worst enemy, wasn't he, Mark?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> you, 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 The thing is, and the, the Trumps, they made too many records to full because some of them are really fantastic. Of course. At times, the band itself were good. I mean, almost funky, if you can imagine that, with this extraordinary sort of full staffian figure in front, sort of berating the audience, sneering and mocking. I mean, I, I, a bit of me really loves Mark e. Smith, you know.
0: I agree. And they did, They were absolutely fabulous from, like, Roush, Rumble, Fiery yeah. Jack, right through to, like, Slates and Hex and Duction out. Hex I was with them out. all the way. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, There's I, a couple of other questions. We, we I think we used this mithering word last time. The country's turning into a bunch of whinging, mithering bastards going on about nothing at all, Spoilt brat. In every rock article you read, there's some fucking cunt going on about what a hard life he's had. It's all very third world, very crusty, very hippie. (laughs) Got fucking hippies on the brain. Look at Boy George. He does two lines of heroin and he fucks it up. Goes and ruins it for everybody else. And it's the same with people who can't hold their drink. <laughs> yeah. uh, he could hold his drink. Uh, uh. Couldn't he? Anyway. Brilliant. Um, Marky Smith. <laughs> That's a very, very funny article. It's just it's a good old rant. Then, and then the, the, the more recent pieces by Lisa are about two women that we absolutely love, don't we, Jasper? Christine and the Queens and Billie Eilish. And they're just fantastic. I mean, she got in really early with Billy, So this is a piece from... Just a little over a year ago, and she goes to LA and she goes to to the Eilish household. And I mean, this girl is now the, probably the biggest pop star on the planet. Did you have a chance to read this piece?
2: I have read it, not before this, but I read it a while ago when I was sort of seeing what we had on Billy. You were archive. telling us
0: about Billie Eilish before we even knew anything about her, Jasper. So, do you want to just, you know, quickly explain why you think she's so good? I just—it's about sound again. Actually, this is sort of this
2: recurring theme today: is that the sound of her records is just different to what else was happening yeah. at the time. And now, now everyone sounds and sings like Billie Eilish, which is a bit tedious. But actually, there's a menace that belies. I mean, there's there's just something about the way that it's all put together that's extremely well produced it is immaculately you know everything is tight nothing is there without a reason which is kind of a welcome reprieve as compared to a lot of pop music that has lots of bells and whistles all over it but this is it's just it's kind of snarling and mean and nevertheless quiet and intense it's i really like the music i mean the article notes that she was famous for sort of three years as a sort of with a lot of teen fans and it's really last year that she broke through massively onto onto the pop stage and actually lisa verico anticipates that saying that the album should make her a household name and because yeah, it hasn't it even has. come out at this point yeah and exactly, the, focus exactly.
0: the headline refers to 13 reasons why which she'd done did she do all the music for that or just some of the music because it was about suicide, wasn't it? And there was that sort of noir edge to to her, to what she does.
2: Yeah, for sure. And, and I think the other thing that's nice about Billie Eilish is that she's very much herself. Like, she's not... She doesn't necessarily want to be famous. It's not about fame at all. And she says that in this interview. And I think people sometimes kind of are critical of... The, because of that 13 Reasons Why People are Critical of the, the suicide elements of that show and... People are critical of her music as inspiring young people to do bad things. As always is the case with people complaining about young people, but actually she's got. To, I mean, in as, as far as one can at that age and, and with that level of fame, seems to have her head screwed on reasonably well. And you know, one of her songs is about Xanax, but it's about not taking Xanax, right. not wanting to take Xanax. Sure. So it's actually it's easy to jump to conclusions with someone like Billie Eilish, but one should avoid it. <laughs>
3: To feel
4: better
0: How would you compare to the fabulous Eloise Letitier? I'm thinking probably no relation to Matt Letitia. <laughs> But Probably I not. absolutely love Christine and the Queens and it's a fantastic piece where you learn quite a lot about how she created this persona of Christine. And she's very, very transparent about that. You know, she didn't feel very good about herself. She was confused about her, you know, gender identity and all of that. She sort of created Christine and became this absolutely fabulous pop star. It's a great piece from twenty sixteen. You're a Christine fan as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. She's I do think it, I think it
2: I think. I've been berated enough times by my French girlfriend that I should get this right now. I think it's
0: Héloïse. Héloïse.
2: I pray that I got that right. But yeah. Yeah. yeah, it makes <laughs> but sense. Yes, no, I think she's great. I think her music is fantastic. Yeah. And I think I talked about this piece when I added it, actually. Probably. It's great as well because it mentions another French singer called Jane, who I really like. Okay. And she makes just really good, interesting pop rock music, I think. it's It's just
0: and moves fabulously got, as well I mean yeah I, I watched I'd love to see her, her live I, I, I you've you've seen I haven't seen her live I've just watched some videos and, uh, okay. and I love the what she does with her dancers and it's so I love the imperfection of it you know it's very very deliberately not immaculately choreographed and there's something no, much more free it's very free. By, it's yeah, very, free.
2: very free the whole the whole thing yeah. that you know what you were saying about her struggles with her gender identity and all this stuff and I just think she she's delightfully iconoclastic, but not in a sort of I don't know reductive way. She's yeah. just herself, and she's just there, and I think it's it's
0: great. I think she's one of the great pop stars at the moment. I have to say, an absolute sort of delight. Well, so those those are the three pieces by Lisa, whom we are of course delighted to have on RBP. I really love finding Lisa's stuff because it's
2: a lot about hip hop and r&b and pop as well and I think it's great to
0: have yeah. have her stuff on. Absolutely great, you know. So Mark, yeah. do you want to tell us about this week's audio yes, interview? Yes,
3: this is uh, John Tobler. Again, we had him We've featured his interviews quite a lot recently. We've got a lot. Of We've got a them. lot of them, and this is with Rick as he was at this point in his career. Rick Nelson from nineteen. Well, John Thomas says nineteen seventy three. I think it may be nineteen seventy four, but that's a sort of by the by. And Rick, now for those who don't know, Ricky Nelson. Started off as a child star on a TV series called Ozzy and Harriet in Hollywood back in the sixties,
0: starring his his actual his, his actual, so his actual was, parents. His, yes. His
3: parents. Then he branched out, as happens frequently in the present day, into doing pop music. Had a really substantial hit with a kind of late period rock and roll. Tune called "Hello, Mary Lou," which was a huge, huge hit.
2: Goodbye, my uh, heart. Indeed,
3: yes, and, and th- that's in, that's the sort of impression. Yes. yeah. yeah exactly. And then he rebuilt his career as a sort of quite an early country rock person. Very, you early. know, real pioneer, real. Pioneer um, alongside the likes of Linda Ronstadt and those people in Los Angeles who
0: were sort of uh, and almost before any of them. Yeah, I mean, the bright lights and country music album, I believe, was 1966. Wow, and Lay's, some claim to be well you could say it's just a country album but you could argue that it's like the first country well, rock album well I-
3: indeed so which is kind of interesting career path then he had this this interview takes place a year or so after he had this big hit with a song called Garden Party from the album of the same name which was all about and he talks about this interview about how he had been on a rock and roll revival show at Madison Square Garden, the Garden of Garden Party. And they were
0: very big at that time, Uh, weren't they, those revival shows? Absolutely,
3: and how he's booed by the audience for playing his his current staff. You know, you're not allowed to do that. And, in fact, we'll listen to the first clip because it's a very short clip. He talks about precisely this process because he had to leave Mary Lou, Hello Mary Lou, behind and not be trapped by his past. And elsewhere in the interview he talks about how people like Chuck Berry, and the Everly brothers are trapped by their history, and he is very, very keen not to be. So let's have a listen to this first tip.
4: It's a real trap that you can get into, you know? Mm. Because people are always gonna like, accept it, and it would go over, and, and it's terrific, but it never becomes anything other than yeah. a remembrance, you know? thing like that, you know. It's not a, a growth or
0: it's Yeah.
3: Yeah, I mean you know, and he he sort of semi successfully did that. One thing is he always had good bands. I mean, if you go back to the country stuff, he's got people like James Burton playing behind oh, God, him. Yeah. On well, James sort of played stuff. on
0: those rock and roll hits, these astonishing yeah. solos.
3: Oh, those absolutely fantastic. That turned yeah. a
0: generation of guitar players. I mean, there was Scotty Moore originally, and then I think when people like... Well, I, don't, I mean, all the British guitar heroes, when they when they first heard those James Burton solos on like Believe What You Say yeah, yeah. and others, it it absolutely blew their minds. Absolutely...
3: In this case, he's got this pedal steel player called Tom Bromley, yes. who I believe played behind one of the Bakesfield guys. I think so. Not Merle Haggard. I think he might have played with Buck Owens. That's right. He played Buck Owens. Tom Bromley, superb steel player. And the steel is the most heavily featured instrument on, certainly in his live band. And he talks with some love about... Tom Brumley and the pedal steel guitar, about how it doesn't have to be like a, a filling the instrument, but can be a really beautiful lead instrument. He talks, and we'll listen to another clip in a sec, he talks about the, the, the L.A. club scene, very interestingly, how the troubadour is a place where the, the record company sort of guys go and all of that, whilst he loved playing the Palomino, which is an absolute out-and-out country
0: much more joined. authentic yeah. kind of country dive in, in North Hollywood just want to mention just the yeah. reason we've selected this for this week is that Rick would have been 80 tomorrow right. had he not gone down in a plane crash so it's his birthday fellow yeah. Taurian, and that's the reason yeah. we're running it I really love Rick Nelson I have to say and um, so so the, the next clip Mark is, is yeah, essentially it's, it's, talking it's about, about the club scene yeah.
3: the, about the Palomino mm. Well, I'll
4: tell you what I st- started doing is playing the Palomino. Oh yeah, that's the country western. Yeah. Right. And uh, well, for one thing, you get paid, you know. <laughs> and uh, like at the troubadour, you end, it ends up costing you, you know, to the play there. Oh really? Yeah. Well, because they it's they it's use just so like a they pay the minimum to everybody, you know. And it's really they use it as a, it's kind of a springboard, you know, for yeah. people, you know, which. It works with a lot of people, but uh, you know, I ended up I did it like three or four times, you know, mm. and it becomes kind of you almost expected. Well, when are you going to play the Troubadour again? <laughs> that, you know? Yeah, so it's nothing new. Right? So I enjoy playing the Palomino you know, because the audience go out there to really enjoy themselves, you know, mm. just have a good time, and not not really kind of pick your act apart and do all that. Yeah, it's really a drag. You know? <laughs> Cause, uh, it, it hasn't got the sort of smart people that go to the Roxy. I I think it's. Well, the so called smart people. Yeah, well, that's right. The the industry people is really what it appears to be the the uh, audience is made up of. End up being the the least knowledgeable. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. They're they're, they're sitting there being, you know, criticizing everything. Yeah. They go in there with that in mind, you know. And uh, I think there are actually more music lovers that that, uh, that just really like music, you know, that go to to Palomino. Alright now yeah. Learn my lesson well You see you can't please everyone so you got to please yourself
3: Yeah, no, I mean, I, I I, think that's really interesting. The Palomino was where Linda Ronstadt first really broke through, wasn't it?
0: Cause that... Yeah, a lot of country rockers played the Palomino yeah. because it felt a little bit more authentic and less industry.
3: I like the way he sort of points out that Troubadour was more or less a pay-to-play sort of joint as well. Yeah, it didn't have a great reputation. Yeah. You,
0: you were supposed to feel like you, you were honoured to yeah, play yeah. there, therefore, you know, you shouldn't really deserve a lot of money for it.
3: It's interesting, Doug Weston tried to open a San Francisco Troubadour in the the late 60s, around 68, 69, and it failed because people weren't into that whole kind of troubadour vibe. So, yeah, he, he talks about his recent country albums with a great deal of fondness. He talks very amusingly about his acting roles. Because having been this kind of child star, he's now turning up in things like the Streets of San Francisco, yes. MacLeod, and he's playing like rapists and murderers, which he finds really amusing, given the fact <laughs> that he had this sort of like squeaky clean image as a, you know, as, a, yes. as a child star. We'll listen to another clip at the end where he, he talks about why the band is his band is called the Stone Canyon Band, which is actually is a great band name. It has to be said, the Stone Canyon Band.
0: Uh, well, you know, I remember because I remember reading first about Rick Nelson, probably in like Zigzag and yeah, Let's yeah. It Rock, and sort of. Understanding that there were there were sort of two Rick Nelsons. There was the, there was this sort of pretty boy Ricky, you know, who you know somehow managed to fly the nest and record these really fantastic rock and roll records. You know, it was interesting to hear that cramps audio the other day and how, how much reverence Lux and I were talking yeah, yeah. about Ricky, those rock rock and almost like rockabilly ish records. And then there was this Rick Nelson who had kind of completely reinvented himself as, you know, the sort of guy that that sort of birthed Poco and the Eagles and everybody yeah. else, you know. And there are good records. I mean, Garden Party yeah, is yeah, a great, yeah, yeah, great little song. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, it's good. Anyway, Stone it's Canyon good. Band, yeah, they 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 were, you know, an important yeah. kind of tributary.
3: Yeah, in in another sort of way as well. He sort kind of invented the thing that e. Lou Harris carried on, which is forming a band to back him, who are pretty red hot. You know, in the same way as. You know, Emmy Lou had well James Burton, but then Albert Albert Lee and so on and so forth playing great guitar. That was a real yeah. feature. Anyway, so that's that's lovely the
0: audio. Lovely. Do you want to tell us about the new pieces? Yeah, actually, you, this, you I'm value. afraid there's
3: quite a lot. I'll try and get this keep do this as quick as possible because it's been a good week. Or just leave some uh, out. Oh well, I could leave I could leave some yeah. out. Brown Wilson interviewed by Jamie McCluskey the third for KRLA Beat. <laughs> now Jamie McCluskey the third is, Great name. is uh, yet another pen name for last week's feature, yeah. Eden, Nicky mm. Wine. And she she buttonholes him and gets him to talk about... And this is 1965, KRLAB. He must be just starting to work on things which became Pet Sounds at this point, yeah. you know? Yeah. yeah. And he says, personally, I like a certain kind of orchestrated sound like Nelson Riddle and contemporary popular music. You know, that's interesting, you know, that he would like Nelson Riddle when, you know, pop people despised Nelson Riddle at that time. Not very cool. Not no. at all cool. He says, sometimes I just sit down at the piano and write. And before I even start writing, I know that I'm not writing for commercial reasons, so I'll just write to explore some of my musical capacities. He goes and says, musically, I'm still searching for a new thing, a new bag, a new field. I don't know what's coming, but I know what's here. So mm. it's, it's, it's it's great Scott. Great, fantastic. 1969, our new writer, Philip Elwood, writing for San Francisco Examiner, he saw the band's notoriously disastrous Winterland debut. And that's what this is. This is the his review of that. And he says, they showed fine musicianship and artistic homogeneity, especially in the three-part Tears of Rage. But it was too little, too late for the crowd. And when Bill Graham tried to explain the band's sudden departure, he was hooted down. We talked about this before, but it was Robbie Robertson was ill, he had a hit to on one side of the stage. He came back the next night and they apparently played really well, but yeah, you know, that's that,
0: that's. I'm intrigued by the phrase "the three-part tears of rage." I don't know that's what you mean by that. No, that's no, interesting. No. I don't know what um, that means.
3: But anyway, it's, it's it's great to have a review of that show on the site. Yeah, you know, of it's because it's, it's such a sort of you know famous famous thing.
0: Absolutely.
3: Moving forward to eighty-three, you've got David and Don was was not was interviewed by David Keeps, who's another one of our new yeah, new, new writers.
0: New writer on the site
3: It's a Don what says It's very rare to see someone Who's making vital music Ten years ago Still doing it today It's a great interview I won't mean, read More quotes from it But they're such Interesting people to read Interestingly enough With Was Not Was Don sort of has The ongoing reputation As a record producer And all that But David was really The ideas guy In that band He's
0: consistently
3: funny in interviews.
0: He's he's, he's, because Don's gone in a more sort of straight, he's actually followed quite a a conventional career path in some ways, absolutely. Whereas David was a bit more of a a maverick and maybe a bit more responsible for the slightly sort of satirical elements, very much so. I think, I think, I
3: think that's absolutely right. And Don has really become
0: a very straight record producer. Well, I sat in his in his like 12th floor office in the Capitol Records Uh Tower in Hollywood, He he had got a very, very nice nice corporate gig there running Blue Note Records. As right. it, right. it you now exists. You know, it done very nicely yeah. for himself. Yeah, yeah. yeah I don't know what David is even doing now, to be honest. No, with no idea.
3: This next piece I'm extremely pleased to get because it's Danny Weitzman, Shredder, reviewing the DOCs. No one can do it better. For LA Weekly in 1989. Now, no one can do it better. Is I think one of the great hip hop albums. It was definitely the best album ever released on Easy E's Ruthless Records. Right. And uh, well, I'll read what Danny Weitzman says because mm-hmm. also it's possibly one of Dre's best productions. And it's you know this whole thing I believe that when Dre does a whole album, he's good. When he does parts of albums, he's really boring. Danny Whitesman says, if the rappers in front of Dre weren't so often obscene, and if the act of sampling and mixing were taken with the slightest bit of seriousness as an art, and Positive Dre would be considered the film spectre of his generation. Mm. Now, this is 1989. That's, that's sure, really... That's pretty that, precious. That really is. But he also loves the album. Then shortly after the album was made, DOC ran his car off the road and ripped his vocal cords, and that was the end of his rapping career. Yes, he did go true. on to have an extensive writing career, as writing stuff for particularly Dre's productions as a lyricist. But it was a great loss, and you know, I'd really say to anyone, if you can... Have a listen to "No One Can Do It Better." It's a really great hip hop album.
0: Does he show up in the documentary about Dre oh, yes. and Jimmy Iovine? He's in that. Yeah, yeah, isn't yeah, he? yeah, he
3: is. No one can do it better. No one, no one can do it better. Then the last thing I'm going to talk about, and this is again, this is really, I think, fantastic piece of writing. Again, for LA Weekly from 1991, is R.J. Smith. It's about Guns N' Roses. It's about the Use Your Illusions Illusion. Part 1 and 2. It's kind of half an album review, half a general treatise on Guns N' Roses. And they've released this song called One in a Million, which had the, the racist and homophobic stuff in it.
0: And uh, was there an anti-Semitic it was the It was a really unpleasant It's all the best record. of Axl Rose in one no. song. Uh,
3: anyway, so <laughs> R- uh, RJ, <laughs> R.J. Smith says... Bloody, um... One in a million signalled in a subterranean way his, Axel Rose's, blood ties to the white working and lower middle class. Mm. Fans knew he came from the heartland. The people who paid far and away the highest price in the wake of the advances of the civil rights agenda knew it best of all. One in a million set Rose's image as another great American populist, singing a song telling the children to stand up, like Woody Guthrie or Charles Manson. <laughs> <laughs> And then he he goes on later and says, in the Reagan years, it was the country's new foundation. Whole families were living off the books and the attitude was everywhere. No wonder Donald Trump is a Guns N' Roses fan. Now, I love it. In in a way, what R.J. Smith is predicting the Trump base in this. And when you think about it, if you were 18 years old in 1990 or whatever it was, you'd become like 40 now, yeah? You'd be a Trump voter. If you're a white working class or lower middle class,
0: you'd be out protesting the
3: lockdown. You would on be out ab- of City Hall. Yeah. Absolutely. So so RJ Smith in this piece in nineteen ninety-one absolutely pinpoints the future voter base of Donald Trump.
0: And it's absolutely just too sneeringly woke even for you, Jas. No, no, I just I love
2: I love this idea of protesting against the lockdown. That's for public health reasons. Oh, don't, don't, like look. it's just, it's hilarious. Like it's so you really Jasper, couldn't make
3: it up. You're losing your freedom. That's what <laughs> it's all about. It's this notion of individual liberty. It really is. You know, I mean, yeah, yeah no, you're absolutely right. Know, so you're right. I'd rather be
0: right, dead just, than not. Yes,
3: essentially. yes, but but, exactly. but I love this piece because I think RJ, no, it uh, RJ great. Smith, I, I'm really, really, cap- to really captures what will become the Trump base. What year is it from? Ninety-one. Wow, so, exactly.
0: Well, Smith is one of the best writers ter- we have ter- on Rockstar Pages. Writer. You know, right, fantastic biography of James Brown. And
3: I just read this piece with my jaw on my chest. It was like, this that is, is extraordinary this is stuff, really. To read. Great. I
0: saw it when you pulled the quote out. I don't know if you put it on Facebook or what, but I saw it on the list of quotes yeah, yeah. for the week. And I'm like, wow, that is extraordinary, isn't it? So basically, Axel Rose is responsible for all of this horror. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm going to stick my neck out yeah. and make that claim. I mean, I always hated him anyway. Yeah, yeah.
3: No, I mean, you, so, know, I, you know, I think that Sonic you know, Guns N' Roses were a faintly amusing sort of Aerosmith revival band in many respects. But
0: <laughs> uh, we're
3: really going to get some hate mail yeah, today. But, 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 but <laughs> Axl Rose was a kind of ghastly, appallingly interesting personality. Sure, I agree. You know, not your standard rock and roll front man, you know. White trash superhero. White trash superhero. So, anyway, a really fantastic piece, bit of writing. Yeah,
0: brilliant, Mark. That's fantastic. That's my lot. That's tremendous. I'll mention just very two, two things very, very quickly. A Miles Marshall Lewis piece that I did from 1999 from Village Voice. It's his roundup, essentially, of the previous year in hip hop. And what's interesting is he talks about Lauren Hill's much-faced Miseducation mm-hmm. album. Mm. And he says that actually quite a lot of his friends, uh, he's a black writer, are not convinced by Lauren Hill and find that album. I mean, at the time of release and in the wake of its release, to be slightly bogus, which is which is really interesting because it still has a very high reputation. And the other piece I want to just mention is just a lovely, lovely piece by the late Carol Clark, which is essentially an obituary for and a, a tribute to the great Joey Ramone. It's just a great piece, really informed by personal experiences. With Joey and other punks, and she talks to a lot of the punks, like Rat Scabies, who adored the Ramones, who were influenced by the Ramones. And look, I mean, there are a million pieces written by, by the Ramones. Sometimes you read one which reminds you what what an extraordinary mm-hmm. star or anti star Joey Ramone was, yeah. and, and and what a just fundamentally decent human being. I mean, I met him to a couple of times, and re- I just you just loved this guy. Yeah. He was so sweet.
3: Uh, the most decent Ramon of the lot, without, without, <laughs> yeah. without a shadow yeah. of a doubt. Yes.
0: It's probably not that difficult, really, but I, you I only mean, had to we, we, be a
3: bit nice and I, you I were mean, instantly. I think mean, Johnny Ramon was close to Axel Rose in his political attitudes, well, you, you know. Exactly.
0: Yeah. yeah. Jasper,
2: what have you got for us? A couple of quick things, three things to mention. First of which is our first piece on the Neil Cowley Trio, which I added. Just wanted to give a shout out to that. He's a jazz pianist, but he's also played with. The brand new heavies, Adele. So he's sort of right. like, he's, when he does his own stuff, it's jazz, but he also plays, you know, pop and rockish kind of keyboards. So he makes his money playing for Adele. Yeah, I imagine so. I'd hope so, anyway. Hope so. But actually, he's quite an interesting sort of modern jazz trio pianist along the vein of the Bad Plus and, and Go Go Penguin and bands like that, where it's quite. It's not sort of, there, there are no lengthy improvised solos or anything like that. It's, it's quite tight and, I mean, progressive might give you a sort of impression of something you wouldn't want to listen to, but actually I think some of it is really interesting, quite angular, and he's playing at the, the Queen Elizabeth Hall review by David Sinclair. And what David Sinclair says is they use pop and rock structures in a jazz context to bring out the best of both worlds, especially on the choppy groove of Hug the Greyhound and the <laughs> staccato passages of La Port. So, it, I, you know, I, I do think...
0: I do think they're a sort of interesting noir contemporary jazz group. You can't hug a greyhound too sort of vigorously, though, can you? They're very very skinny. You can hug a Labrador or a St Bernard. You can't give a greyhound a very, very, a very sort of affectionate You would
3: get bruised. I'm
0: just not, m- noting that. No, no you'd get
3: bruised, and if it decided to take off for a run, it would probably kick you very hard in the face. <laughs> probably, I, yeah. I, I'm glad we um, analyzed that. that uh, <laughs> or
0: am I confusing item? with a whippet? But well, it's not called
3: whippet, a whippet. No, whippets are just small greyhounds, remember. They're very, they very are, small versions you of couldn't greyhounds.
0: You could hug a greyhound. You, you, you couldn't hug a whippet, as I said, too, too vigorously. Sorry about that uh, tangent. And that was this week's episode of, of the Rock's Back Pages Dogscast. Cast, <laughs> sponsored by Croft.
2: <laughs> Next up is Overview of a Vampire, a closer look at the weekend's lyrics. Now, this is interesting because The Weeknd is a, is a pretty massive star, and this is John Calvert writing in The Quietus. John Calvert is a, quote, guilt-ridden ultra-fan of misogynist Canadian R&B star The Weeknd, and here, instead of brushing the themes of his music under the carpet or attempting to explain them away as theatre, he takes a forensic look at his lyrical content. Now, I think that would be an interesting goal, although it does, it does end up being a sort of, like, he might be a misogynist and it might be theatre, but then I'm just going to analyse his lyrics for a while, without really coming down I, I i'm sort of slightly uncomfortable with with the weekend's lyrics because there is a lot of violence and misogyny in them and i think that his claim that it's sort of he's just playing a role is a little bit of a cheap get out okay. but i mean it's quite a long sort of essay on on the lyrics and it does it does go into what he's saying and what is represented in these sort of it's a self-hating r&b star who, particularly on his early stuff, I mean, when he started getting really massive hits, he definitely sanitised it a bit. But the early, he did sort of trilogy of of mixtapes called the House of Balloons trilogy. And there's some really disturbing stuff. I mean, sonically, it's quite interesting. But listening back to it now, it's sort of, it's quite uncomfortable as well. So I think that's an interesting piece exploring those dimensions of it and whether or not it's possible to, you know, I mean, he quotes another journalist as saying, Art made from the point of view of villains and monsters is compelling. Loving it does not equal condoning horrific behaviour, which is a sort of a a tricky debate and one that we've talked about before. But there does come a point when if you are supporting someone who's making really violent claims in their music, there's a sort of, it can be a bit tricky, I think.
0: Why does he spell The weekend with only two E's? It's edgy to leave out vowels, I think. Right answer. I don't know his music well enough. I like that record about not being able to feel his face.
4: I can feel my face when I'm with you. But I love it. But I love
0: it. Oh, I, can't I can't feel my face when I'm with you. With... I thought yeah, it was good. That but I haven't heard enough. I think enough. that's quite a good record. Yeah, that was good. But I haven't heard enough more to be able to say whether I think he's like the genuine article or not. I'm probably too old to understand these these strange, self-hating, introspective hip-hop artists.
2: He does have... I mean, the piece compares him to Ian Curtis and Kurt Cobain okay. on that front. So, I, I, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know whether to recommend you listen to him. I do think Can't Feel My Face, Face is a good record. Yeah. It's dark. The early stuff is dark. Right, great. And then the final piece I just wanted to note briefly is that i added a review of Tame Impala's most recent album, The Slow Rush which came out a couple of months ago. Dave Simpson reviews it in The Guardian, likes it a fair amount. I don't know, Barney, you're quite a Tame Impala fan.
0: I absolutely love Tame Impala. I think we did talk about them a little bit the other day. I really fell in love with Lonerism. I don't know why I decided to check that record out, but I think it's a fantastic Mm. album. It's my favourite, of the ones I know. I just like what he does very much. Having said that, Watched him on TV playing Glastonbury last year, and I didn't think it worked live at all. But I really, really like him. I like the stuff on on, on the new record. I like the song about sort of getting, I can't remember what the title is, but sort of get, getting old. It's it's like, isn't it, isn't it time we sort of grew up a bit kind of thing now we're in our 30s.
2: There's also a really nice lyric that Dave Simpson talks about where he's Posthumous forgiveness dissects the troubled relationship between him and his father with unflinching candour and small child's excitement. I wish I could tell you about the time I had Mick Jagger on the phone, and I think that's kind of, it reflects a similar theme of being a little bit more retrospective and considered. Although I don't love the album. I think it is, it, there, there are elements of interesting synthiness, but it, it doesn't have the same
0: kind of energy as Lonerism. But, or what was, the one, what was the one after Lonerism? It had a big hit on it. Can't remember the name of it. People talk more about that these days. Currents, that's it, currents. But I I think he's one of the most impressive pop figures out there today. I really do. Also, I know he likes Todd Rundgren, so that's obviously going to kind of... Get you know, him in your good. You bit. can hear a little bit of Todd in his in the I way you sense, you, you know, can. and that's that's always a good thing in my book. So does that bring us to the end of the episode? I think that okay. does bring us to the end of the well, episode. Well, it's been great. I really enjoyed it and talked about an awful lot, and it was lovely having Simon on. So thanks to him again. And that's probably it. We will see you next week and Mark talk us out at the final Rick Nelson Well, clip. It's,
3: it's just him talking about how he got his band name, Stone Canyon. Yeah.
0: We'll be back next week and with james fox as our guest and james is going to talk about a number of things but certainly one of them will be working with keith richards on his autobiography life so we look forward to welcoming james into the virtual cupboard next week so see you then
3: see you bye bye, bye. See you. bye. See you then. <laughs>
4: So so it's, it's still called the Stone Canyon Band, by the way? Yeah, it yeah. is. Which is, comes from a, a, thing, a, we saw a stone canyon, it's at the other end of Sunset, isn't it? Well, right. it's right down here, it's off of uh, Ventura. Oh, is it? Yeah. Uh-huh, right. And it's just, it's, I was trying to think of a name, you know.
2: Yeah, it's, it's a good name.
4: It's a it's very Can- American,
2: very Californian name. Though. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Canyon, got the canyon in it. That's right, yeah. That was Rick Nelson in conversation with John Tobler in 1973, concluding this week's Rock's Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to our Kraftwerk correspondent, Simon Witter, the host for Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Murison Bowie. The Rock's Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com.
0: Have we forgotten anything? Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, there's nothing else to do, is there? Who are we again? What is this? What's Rock's Back Pages? Why? Why?